hear this. Hi, my name is Jimmy Briggs. I'm a writer, journalist, and activist. Most importantly, I'm the partner of Linda K. Klein to my left. Hey, Linda. Hi. <laughs> Linda is a well-renowned purity culture recovery coach, the founder of Break It Together, and the author of Pure, this book here, inside the evangelical movement that shamed the generation of young women and how it broke free. It's, it's interesting for us to do this because we've only interviewed each other once before, and Linda interviewed me many years ago. So this is really my first time interviewing her, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. We were very uh, excited about this, and I'm particularly honored to be in conversation with, with my partner and wife, who I'm so proud of. Should I tell, I'm gonna tell, can I tell you a little quick story? You can tell the story, sure. So the, um, so, Jimmy said the first time we did the interview, it was actually reversed. I interviewed Jimmy, it was 10 years ago. Yeah. And um, I was so moved by his story and his work that by the end of the interview, I said, I have one final question. This is when we were dating. We weren't boyfriend, girlfriend yet. Um, so I said, I have one final question. And then I said, will you be my boyfriend? <laughs> Obviously, I said, yes, we're still together. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going to come out of this conversation, but we'll see what happens at the end of it. All right. Yes. Who knows? Anything can happen. Don't want to build anticipation too much. In a Jimmy Linda interview. Exactly. Linda, and I'm sure many in the audience know who you are, know your work, know the book Pure. Um, but for those who might not know the full story, maybe you could briefly explain how you became so immersed in the purity culture movement and, and, and you know, kind of an overview of your immersion in it, your experience, your lived experience through it. Yeah. Well, you know, as you alluded to, I have personal experience. Um, you know, maybe I'll paint a little bit of a picture. So in 1991, I was a seventh grader, and uh, my mom had already been born again. My brother had already been born again. I had heard this language of born again um, over the course of my life, but for the first time, I found myself smack dab in the center of the subculture. And it was really um, moving to be suddenly surrounded by a ton of people who were having this incredibly emotional experience that I wanted to be a part of. Um, and that was my entryway into evangelicalism proper. And in evangelicalism, I was exposed to you know, some things that were really moving to me, like a sense of community and a sense of feeling like I belonged a little more than I had felt in my junior high school. Uh, but as I started to grow older, and in particular, uh, grow, you know, <laughs> develop more, uh, I felt myself less and less part of the community that accepted me. Um, as I became a woman, that is to say, as I became heavily sexualized, um, as I became deemed a stumbling block for the men in my youth group and the boys in my youth group, um, it began to feel less and less comfortable. Uh, you know, I was really part of, as you mentioned, the purity movement, uh, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to any of us youth, right? 
this was a massive movement that was born out of the white American evangelical Christian church that took the concept of sexual abstinence before marriage and um, made it much more severe in its teachings. So for example, purity culture, and in particular the purity movement, would teach that you need to have a sexual purity of mind, sexual purity of heart. You're not supposed to be too attracted to anybody. You're not supposed to have those stirrings inside, let alone act on them in any number of ways, You know, not just penis and vagina sex. And if you were a girl or a woman, you weren't supposed to inspire these sexual thoughts or feelings in men. So the severity of the teaching became incredibly extreme. And these extreme teachings really, um, you know, uh, doused those of us in evangelicalism um, with a extreme self-regulation. And not only self-regulation, but regulation of one another, right? We were actually asked to hold one another accountable, not only ourselves. So there was almost, a, you know, a, um, a, a culture of anxiety of when you were going to be caught of uh, as someone knowing you had a sexual thought, right? Or wearing something that you thought was okay, but someone else said, no, 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 that made him have a sexual thought, so that was actually very sinful what you wore, or at the very least dangerous what you wore. Um, so I developed a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of shame within this culture that, um, that you know, was particularly strong within that world, but, you know, actually spread far beyond it. And really, I ended up leaving at the beginning of my adult life thinking that I was now going to be able to uh, determine my own sexual ethics, my own brand of human being I wanted to be, which included being a strong woman, a woman who spoke up for what she believed in, um, a woman who you know disagreed openly. All of these things that I had been taught were wrong and were sinful in purity culture. And what I discovered very early into my adulthood when I made this choice to leave so I could have my own authentic self um, was that I had been so deeply uh, shaped by this culture that though I now disagreed with its teachings, my body still lived by its rules, right? Uh, my neuropathways were deeply shaped by its narratives, by its metaphors, by its habits. And I found myself in war with myself, right? Wanting to be free, but feeling trapped, <laughs> though I had left the community that had trapped me. I want to I hone in on what you just said just now about the feeling, feeling of being trapped. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to go back, give some more context, if you, if you can. Two things, two things struck out. One, I'm really curious about the time period. Um, you, you mentioned being in seventh grade yeah. in the early 90s. And you know, just looking back at what was happening culturally in popular culture, mainstream America, you know, coming out of the, the go-go 80s uh, into, um, you know, as people describe it, the hangover 90s. What, 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 about, what was happening in popular culture specifically from your perspective that was particularly threatening to the evangelical movement, so that that, that allowed purity culture to be born. I mean, yeah. What was what was yeah. happening that that really, um, really, you know, really kind of called called out to, to that moment being the moment where purity culture became immersed in, in educational curricula and popular society, um, and 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 also as an impact on legislation as well. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I leaned over and grabbed a book mm. off the shelf because um, I think that this book's uh, title even just says a lot. So this is the naughty 90s, right? Yeah. You know, the, the 90s were a really important time as we think about the evolution of how our country thought about sexual ethics. Um, you know, partially this came out of, and this is all about pop culture and politics, like think about everything that was going on, right? We had Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, all kinds of conversations yeah. that were happening yeah. at the time. You know, but but go back a little further and you've got the sexual revolution, mm -hmm. right? And then go forward a little bit and you've got the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Um, so coming, you know, into the early 90s with this history and with this pop culture context, right? And a lot of fear among people about young people having sex, um, you know, getting pregnant, and STIs in yep. particular, yep. right, and particularly AIDS. Um, there was a cultural conversation that was going on around how we deal with this. And there were advocates who said, you know, we need comprehensive sexuality education. We need to give young people as much information, as much resources, um, as many resources, as many tools as possible. And then there were others who said, no, actually, quite the opposite. We need to take away this sexual information. Mm -hmm. We need to teach them about sexual purity. We need to ensure that they don't have sexual thoughts or feelings and that that ensures that they don't have sex before marriage. And if they just you know, can make it to their heterosexual <laughs> Christian marriage, then we don't even have to talk about pregnancy or STIs or any of this. And you mentioned this, but ultimately, you know, at a federal level, the second argument for how we protect young people, right, uh, is the one that won a lot of federal money. So we started to see, you know, starting in 1981, so it had already begun, but we started to see a major ramp up of federal money for abstinence only before marriage messaging. Um, and much of that money actually required state matching in order to be accessed. So we're talking about, since 1981 in this country, over $2 billion going to abstinence only before marriage messaging. That to say nothing of the state matches, right? Um, that's just federal money. So that really, that money started to show up in the hands of many evangelicals who had been talking about purity and had their own metaphors and their own teachings that could very quickly be developed into full-blown public school curricula. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. We started to see these teachings, not just in the evangelical world, but in public schools, every state except California took money for those abstinence only before marriage messaging, sex ed, you know, curricula, et cetera. Um, started to see in public schools, started to see it at international aid for HIV, started to see it in grassroots organizations, you know, et cetera, um, you know, in large part funded by our own government. Mm -hmm. And Linda, you know, you noted, th thank you so much for the response. I mean, and you have to talk, talk, talk about this a little bit, but I'm curious, um, why especially does it matter that it was the, the white American evangelical church um, that nurtured and birthed the purity culture movement? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so first of all, yes, nurtured, birthed, and then exported, right, with the... Um, uh, the sort of concept of white is right, 
Americans and the Western culture are the most knowledgeable, we're right. So really steeped in white supremacy, really steeped in patriarchy. Um, you know, the exporting of the purity movement is inextricable from its whiteness, from its Americanness, from its maleness, right? Though, though certainly we do have women who were involved in the teachings of the purity movement. This is a deeply patriarchal movement. So I, I name it because, um, because what showed up in that community um, was so clearly exported and translated in many cases and so showed up differently in other places. Um, but, you know, for example, when I talk to people of color who were raised in purity culture, uh, we talk about how we were reading the same books, right? These are books by white people with pictures of white people on the covers, you know. Um, today, purity culture um, teachings look a little bit more diverse, right, or a lot more diverse. Um, but, you know, there wasn't even an attempt to, <laughs> to talk about the unique experiences of people of color, let alone queer people, let alone people in other cultural contexts, um, you know, and so on and so forth in the beginning of the period, during the height of the purity movement. I mean, that, that exportation, as you know better than I do, I, I saw it myself as a journalist in places in sub-Saharan Africa. A lot mm -hmm. of African countries adopted the purity culture tenets and still maintain those today. Absolutely. Yeah. Not only that, but I actually had a really interesting conversation with someone at the Carter Center uh, who told me that when the Carter Center was doing work on HIV in particular, that they were coming in, they were talking about safe sex, they were trying to educate people about um, condoms and so on and so forth, and the leadership that they were working with were saying, no, 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 you know, this is all sinful, we're not going to bring any of these things in. We've already got the approval of the Western culture uh, telling us that, that we shouldn't be teaching these things, and of course, you know, they were talking about the evangelicals who have been purposefully doing a lot of work in Latin America and in Africa, in particular, among other places. Um, you know, so in many ways, it actually justified these um, the sexual shame that um, was already part of the culture and part of the conversation right. with the sort of stamp of approval of the progressive West. Um, but it was actually the conservative West that is yeah. saying, you know, um, these teachings are are actually the way to sexual health, though the statistics show quite something different. I'm curious on that. I mean, you, you were an adolescent um, in the late 90s when you, when you um, entered, entered the, the purity culture movement. Um, from your research, you know, especially the research you did for Pure, looking back in that time period, was there resistance to, resistance within the evangelical church um, to the emergence of, of a purity culture? Was there any kind of, hmm. were there, was there any kind of caution people saying, maybe this is not the right thing to do, maybe we should, you know, let's proceed with caution, given the potential impact on young women, young women and girls, on individuals who identify or would identify as LGBTQIA+. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. Um, well, so first of all, as a young person, I would have told you the answer was no. Uh, the messaging was absolutely consistent. Same stories told over and over again, same metaphors, same images, um, same ideas, same language, right? And that's not just true in my youth group, but true in youth groups around the country and in fact around the world. However, 
in my research, what I've discovered is that there were many individuals who actually stood up and expressed concern. Um, I just didn't hear them. And one of the reasons I didn't hear them is because, well, no, not just because I was young, but because there is this culture of sameness. So there's this teaching um, that I remember from growing up, which was a bundle of sticks uh, that is all together is difficult to break. But you know, the more sticks that come apart, the weaker the bundle becomes, and the ones that step away are broken easily. So it was all about we are strength in numbers. If you step away and disagree with something, you weaken us, you weaken yourself. Um, one of the mantras of our youth group was everybody does what everybody does. Hmm. <laughs> so people who disagreed were ultimately um, you know, silenced in a number of ways. One, they were either told, don't sow division within our community, right? Um, you know, and so hush it up, be silent. Or if they refused to be silent, you know, they were saying, they were told, the door is right here, no one's requiring you to stay. And in fact, many people were asked to leave if they became too loud. So it creates a culture of, um, of uh, silenced disagreement. Um, that was often silenced even within the individual, right? You, you learn that voicing is bad. You learn that disagreement is bad. So you learn to shut down your real thoughts, your real feelings, and to only be able to access, let alone express, something that reiterates the party line. Um, or you go off on your own and you are the easily broken stick who now has no community, you know, may have lost access to your family, may have lost access to your partner, um, your parents, um, you know, may perceive that you have lost access to God. Mm. Um, and really, for a lot of us who left, it was, it was a lonely road for many, many years. It's not until very recently that people have begun to find one another and that this community has formed. And there are some within the community who are even working to um, turn it into a constituency, hmm. um, a community that can have a voice, um, which is really very, very new. You know, I, I know the answer to this, but, but I'll ask it, Linda, for, for those who are in conversation with us um, watching this. It, it took you a decade plus of research, reflection, interviews to realize pure mm. which really is from my perspective and correct me if I'm wrong honey um, a book about not only your journey through the purity culture movement but really a book for I would say it's a book for survivors yeah um, because you do interview so many people many of whom you were raised with uh, others you met in an early adulthood and and and, and adulthood yeah um, Survivors of purity culture, including yeah. survivors of sexual violence. Yes. Um, in a more traditional definition of the yeah. word, yeah. What was, what called you in, in the wake of the book's publication to transition to starting a nonprofit, Break Free Together, as well as becoming a coach hmm. for a particular community of, of individuals who I imagine um, the larger coaching community. Um, lar the larger wellness community may not understand or even see. Yeah, the therapist community, yeah. um, absolutely. Sex educators, um, there's a lot of 
lack of understanding among all the different groups that might normally be the helping professionals to whom you would go. Right. Yeah. Um, well, when the book came out, I really was shocked by how much response I received uh, from readers. And, you know, I, I think the book came out at a really auspicious time. Um, people were starting to really wake up to to the existence of purity culture and to realize that they themselves were raised within it, right? And to the existence of other problematic, um, you know, and in some cases traumatic um, religious teachings, right? Um, so I just was overwhelmed by the number of people who were reaching out to me and asking for help. And they were seeking really two things. One was a kind of deep support around recovery and healing that you know, as we were saying before, they couldn't find other places. So they might be seeing a therapist who was helping them in a number of ways, but when it came to this topic, it was just like a black hole, right? So they would have to skip over it or find themselves educating their therapist or their other helping professional, which is not, you know, a great way to get the help that you need. Um, you know, so, so, so they were asking for deep support and deep help and that's where the coaching came in. I started to work with people in a very deep way on recovery and have learned a lot since the book came out about recovery through that process. Um, but the other thing that people were asking for was for community. You know, I mentioned that we're starting to come together um, and there are online communities like the Exvangelicals um, and other communities like the Liturgist community, et cetera. That, um, that are out there, but, but still there is a real hunger for a group of people with whom you can tell the truth, with whom you can tell your story, and then see if anyone else identifies or understands in, in hopes that you're not the only one the way that you had feared you would be. Um, so we started Break Free Together around um, first kind of mapping what was necessary to see if anyone else was doing that work. Um, you know, back in the top of 2018 before my book came out, um, I anticipated that the community building part was going to be necessary. And then when that was indeed necessary and that wasn't being provided sufficiently, um, especially in person, um, I started Break Free Together and started to organize these in-person story exchanges around the country that brought people together to, um, to find one another and now we're slowly because you know we have a little month and yeah. and so everything has been slowed down but we're slowly turning that into an online offering so that people can become trained to hold space for one another in person or online through this online training um, and to really be able to have story exchanges you know in small towns that I couldn't get out to with a nonprofit yeah or you know groups of friends who all went to the same youth group and want to do this deconstruction together though they are located around the world now um, and i think that that's really how we're going to create the changes not only in ourselves you know i think i think what we really need for healing as individuals what i've learned um, is three things one we need to go through the deconstruction reconstruction process pull apart all the crap right I don't look at it, see it, reconstruct a worldview that is in alignment with our own ethics, right? Our own sense of self, 
um, and so on. So deconstruction, reconstruction, community, right? At a certain point, you, you can't be doing it alone, right? We need community. Um, and then the third piece is, and people have been running to this so much faster than I expected recently. Um, the third piece is eventually we need to get to the point where we are a part of someone else's healing, where we are working toward um, helping others. You know, whether it is, you know, as, as um, the hosts of our conference are doing, holding space for people to be able to have these conversations in a conference setting, or whether it's telling your story publicly so others who you may not have ever met, you know, can know they're not alone, um, or bringing it into your therapy pro um, process if you're a therapist, studying it at the PhD level if you're currently, you know, you know doing that kind of work. Um, then, then we start to see the acceleration of the healing. But you can't go there too quickly. Right, right. I found that a lot of people are like, I just realized I was, I, you know, I just realized I was born into purity culture two days ago, and I'm now understanding everything that's wrong with me, and I have to tell everyone immediately because I have to save them. Yeah. And I often say, well, that's very evangelical. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It's my duty to save you. Yeah. Right, like slow down, do your own work, right. take care of yourself, and in time you yeah. can be a part of others' healing in a way that's a little bit less, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, uh, proselytizing. <laughs> Intrusive, I was going to say, but yeah. Um, I have so many questions on that. You know, and I, I'm asking this really, bring this up really, much for myself as for those in conversation with us. Um, recently, you were extensively quoted. I watched the Post article about Britney Spears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm really curious, you know, I've been re reading and rereading that article. Um, I was kind of in that, in that gap, you know, gap age group between you know, those who love Britney Spears as, because they were, you know, they were younger and those who could appreciate her and what, what she meant in the time period that she had her, her, real, her prominence. Um, but lately, as, you, as we know, um, there's been a lot of this conversation on Britney Spears in response to a New York Times uh, short documentary about her, her personal affairs, her wellness, um, her retreat in the public life. And I'm curious, you know, if you could explain, you know, what you did so well in, uh, in the Washington Post article, what Britney Spears, what her journey tells us about purity culture, about when it rises, when it recedes, and about its impact on popular culture. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, and of course, the New York Times video that you referenced was in response to the Free Britney movement. Yes. Um, you know, because Britney has really, you know, I used the word trapped earlier, um, feeling trapped um, by these teachings. Um, you know, and, and Britney really has been trapped in a lot of ways uh, that go beyond the sort of internalization trappings, exactly. right? Um, so, so Britney Spears was among one of many young stars who were branded, you asked about pop culture at yeah. the beginning, and I, and I mentioned the naughty 90s, right? There was all that happening in pop culture. Um, but there's also, there was also another thing happening in pop culture um, starting in the 90s and particularly in the early 2000s um, that was the rise of the purity star, right? Um, and a lot of Disney stars became part of this category. So you had people like Britney Spears, a good Southern girl, you know, talking about how she wasn't going to have sex before marriage, and that was part of her brand. 
You have people like um, Jessica Simpson talking mm. about that. You have Miley Cyrus, yeah. uh, you know, and you have the Jonas Brothers, right, mm. wearing their purity rings and, you know, being very public about um, what that, what that, you know, alignment of not having sex before marriage is, like to the point where I'm even going to wear it on my finger, right? Um, so there was a branding of, um, you know, making purity culture cool that was happening, you know, at a, at a like, you know, on stage at the MTV Music Awards in one case, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Britney was really part of that world, and though she was, um, you know, highly sexualized, um, she was also sort of stamped a good girl in some yeah. ways. Um, and she really towed the line, I think, really fascinatingly in the um, uh, hit me baby one more yeah. time, right? Yeah. Like that video, which um, I had heard that she actually is the one who came up for the concept hmm. for that video, which is, you might remember that schoolgirl yeah. video, yeah. very sexy, tied up, you know, top. And um, so she's really walking the line in that video where she's both playing the good girl and owning the fact that she was being deeply sexualized, yeah. right? Um, and that's something that I think was the beginning of what made Britney Spears start to be controversial in evangelical circles. She was owning her sexualization, mm -hmm. right? She's supposed to be ashamed of people yeah. sexualizing. She's supposed to be ashamed of people having sexual thoughts yeah. or feelings when they see her. But instead, she was actually owning it, making it a centerpiece of that video. And over time, she owned her sexuality more and more. Um, and that became uh, more and more you know, problematic. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this culture, about evangelicalism, is you have these very strict binaries, good, bad, right. in, out. No gray. Right? Yeah, no gray. Yeah. Now, somebody who never was the good girl, right? Um, somebody who was tagged as out, bad, non-Christian, sinful, whore, right? Them owning their sexuality, you know, doesn't disrupt the binary upon which the hierarchy of evangelicalism yeah. is based. They're bad. They're already bad. Yeah. We already, we already, they're already headed to hell, right? Um, what becomes disruptive to the binary and to the whole ethos of the culture is when the good girl, right, owns her sexuality, right? <laughs> now she, now she's, you know, kind of crossing the line and showing that you can move between the two and very quickly, you know, it was deemed, no, she can't, she's just in the bad category, right? So now she is, now she has become sin incarnate to yeah. us um, and has to be um, regulated and controlled. And then she started to do all kinds of other things like, um, you know, own, oops, camera went off for a second, I believe. Um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> my screensaver is on yeah. um so yeah so she became she became much more controversial over sure. time sure and you know, it's, it's, i think especially now the kind of this conversation um in, in the wake of the free britney movement um and you spoke again you've been you've spoken about this in the washington post and other publications um how do you see pretty culture pretty culture movement linda being a, a social force today, 2021 and beyond. I mean, I, I don't want to get political at all, uh, to be sure. I, I, you know, I think about this in light of your work and research or authority uh, in terms of um, the restriction around abortion access mm -hmm. in places like Texas and other places. Um, the, kind of the, the rollback, if you will, on 
LBTQIA plus rights, you know, in regards to young people who are trans. Um, I mean, I'm curious, are, are you seeing, do, do you foresee or are, you, are we seeing now any a reemergence of the purity culture movement and, and its impact on popular culture? It's mm, a great question. Well, I mean, purity culture existed long before the purity movement and purity culture still exists today. So I, I personally differentiate purity culture from the purity movement. Okay. Um, I deem any culture that teaches that people are either pure or impure, good or bad, worthy or unworthy, yeah. honorable or unhonorable. I'm using words that you know are more common in other cultures. Sure. Um, you know, any culture that teaches these things, people are either one or the other based on our perceptions of their gender performance and of their sexuality right. as purity cultures, right? So we can find those in many religious settings. We can find them in secular settings, um, so on and so forth. <coughs> now, the purity movement that came in the early 90s that I was talking about has spiked and come down with the um, uh, the loss of government money. Mm -hmm. You know, as the government money... Uh, started to be pulled back because it was because absence only before marriage messaging was shown to be highly ineffective in public schools at actually decreasing the number of sexual partners one had and right. decreasing the age at which someone had their sexual debut. Yeah. Um, you know the, that movement has really gone down. So we don't see those purity rings. We don't see you know, in pop culture, people showing off those purity rings. We don't see the purity balls, the purity pledges, the so on and so forth. Yeah. However, what I would argue is that the only reason that that purity movement worked in this country, that it was a, that it was something that could exist at all, was because we already were a purity culture. Mm -hmm. We already were defining people, and particularly women and girls, yeah. as good or bad based on our perceptions of their sexuality, and that includes, you know, all kinds of um, all kinds of things beyond having sex before marriage, including you know, who you're having sex with, right? Yeah. You know, think about all the ways that we label and shame people for being gay, for being, um, you know, trans, for being um, a, a woman who owns her sexuality, right. you yeah. know, so on and so forth. Um, we, as a culture, don't know how to have a nuanced conversation about sex and sexuality. Yeah. So instead, we label and categorize um, and that has been going on a long time, and it's still going on today. And so, yes, we still live in a purity culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know that we're um, seeing a rise of the purity movement again, right? Um, but certainly, certainly the advocates of purity culture, um, you know, there's they didn't disappear when the money for abstinence only for marriage sure, messaging, sure, sure. you know, was curbed, right? Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that's intriguing to me, you don't really touch upon it in pure, or touch upon them in pure, but um, I don't think this is showing too much about your coaching practice, but you're also working with men. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious, you know, obviously in summary, not in detail, um, what surprised you about the, about the, the impact of purity culture on men? And, and do you see, um, are you, you know, in the community at large, are you, are you seeing more men uh, more male survivors speak out about themselves as survivors, as, as having survived or emerging from this period of culture, um, which, which, so, which so dramatically, traumatically affected you and scores of other women. Yeah, it's a, 
It's a good question and an important one. Um, you know, men certainly are speaking out more. That having been said, not nearly to the degree that we see women. Um, and in particular, I would say straight men are not speaking out um, to the degree that we see also the queer population in general, right? Um, there is such, as you well know, such a, um, a toxic masculine, um, you know, culture within which we live, broadly speaking. Sure. And it is in its more extreme form um, a, a major part of purity culture. So, so men, broadly speaking, and particularly in purity culture, are raised to believe that um, that showing vulnerability is uh, weakness, yeah. right? Um, so, to talk about your struggles really requires a a tremendous amount of 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 courage, of strength, of braveness. But we don't see it as courage, strength, and braveness. Right, we right. see it as uh, <coughs> a revealing of vulnerability, weakness. Um, you know, not having all the answers is seen as not being, you know, masculine yeah, in some exactly. ways, not being a man. So I hear from a lot of men who are like, is there a, a book that speaks directly to men? A lot of men read my book, yeah. um, which does briefly speak to men, but very little because they don't necessarily have a book that's just for men, right. right? I know a lot of men who have started writing that book um, and who have you know, pulled back for different reasons. This is very complex stuff. Sure. Um, but men are seeking community to be sure, right? Yeah. And they are seeking healing. And it does show up in a very different way in many men um, than it does among women. There are certainly a lot of overlaps, um, but there are some really unique ways that the messaging is different toward men yeah. um, and the way in which it shows up in men's lives. Well, final two questions. Um, our little one, our daughter's coming back home soon, so we want to make sure we, you know, we, we've ended our conversation the, the best possible way. Um, I'll ask both questions at the same time. Um, and it's really kind of, the one, first question I want to ask is piggybacking what you just said. Um, as you're seeing more men, um, cis straight men, um, start to speak and slowly start to speak and writing that book that you're referring to, the book, Mm -hmm. uh, which is yet to be published or written. Um, are you also seeing parallel conversations in communities of color mm -hmm. um, that have also been um, immersed, have immersed themselves in the purity culture movement? And the, and, the, and the last question is, what's next for you? Um, you know, beyond pure, beyond break free together, which still exists, which you're still running, and and your coaching practice. Um, how do you see yourself, um, in the, especially in this period where uh, women's leadership in the evangelical uh, movement is 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 shifting. I mean, and you'll I'm forgetting her name right now, but there was a, a woman, a Beth leader, Moore. Beth Moore, left the church, and and other male leaders, uh, prominent male leaders, are leaving the church as well. Um, does this mean that there's a, a a place for women, a role for women to 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 emerge as leaders? Or that was a lot of questions. Yeah. For for wrapping it up. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, all right. So you'll help keep me on track, and I'm going to try and move quick so yeah. that we can uh, beat our daughter home. Um, so, so among people of color, so well, first of all, one of the things that's really interesting is that in many ways, um, black women have been doing this work longer than the more 
um, visible white women who are deconstructing purity culture. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily related to purity culture per se, right. but related to religion broadly speaking. So womanist theology is a very embodied theology, right? Um, and one of the major things that we're doing in um, purity culture deconstruction is really um, looking at the way that we've separated the body from the mind, mm -hmm. right? Um, but you know, womanist theology talks a lot about the sexualization of the body, yeah. the separation from the body, all of these types of things. So in some ways, you know, you know, there these conversations have been going on for uh, for quite some time. Um, but the very unique uh, population of um, of of folks who were raised in purity culture and who interacted with the white American evangelical purity movement, either the exported version of it that was a little different within their community right. or who found themselves in a white space, right? Got it. Um, you know, those those conversations are, are being had and we're seeing them, hmm. um, but they're, you know, we, I haven't seen a book that really centers that specifically around purity culture. Okay. Great books like Sexuality in the Black Church um, uh, that are out there, like lots of books that touch on it, to be sure, and a lot of, a real breadth of, um, of, of work that's being done and voices that are out there. Um, but yeah, th this is all this is all unfolding, right? We're seeing more and more things um, come out, sure. and more and more voices be added to the conversation, which is critical critical because these teachings, um, you know, show up in such inter intersectional ways in people's yeah. lives. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's see. Uh, what was the next question? Yeah, I, and I, I did not do a good job as a journalist or interviewer. The last question, really, Linda, is is what's next for you? What's next? Yeah, uh, great question. I, you know, I don't know. So. Yeah, neither do I. Clearly, but um, well, I, you know, I, I'm continuing to do the work on purity culture, which was a surprise to me. I expected that, you know, I would not be doing it as long as I have been. But I've been really re-energized on this topic that had really exhausted me by the time the book came out, by the emergence of so many people joining the conversation and wanting to be part of healing. Um, it is becoming a more diverse conversation. It is becoming um, a conversation much more focused on healing and recovery. Um, there are more and more organizations that are cropping up to join um, the movement for healing, this sort of um, post-movement, right? A yeah. movement in response to a movement. Yeah. Um, so, so it has really kept me, kept me engaged and excited and energized within this space. Um, so, so yeah. So right now, that's something that I'm looking at. But, um, but I am uh, exploring the what's next beyond that. But I don't think we're gonna be there uh, immediately. So, got some time. Well, I mean, as your partner, I'm, I'm so proud of you and recognize just the importance of your work, um, not only within the pretty culture movement, but the world at large. Um, I think Pure and your thought leadership and the wake of Pure has really added a lot to. Um, popular culture, mainstream culture, so to speak, getting more insight and understanding um, the impact of the purity culture movement and 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 to and to, to a certain degree the, the, the larger evangelical movement, yeah. which is still for many people um, an unknown. Yeah. Um, thank you for allowing me to to be in conversation with you today, um, and, and thank you all for joining us for this conversation, Linda. I'm, I'm any words as we wrap mm -hmm. up. 
No, thank you so much. This is great. I mean, I think my encouragement to um, all of our listeners is to join us. You know, we want to have a, a conversation that um, becomes bigger and more complex. And, uh, and that means that we need you. And the more that we have these conversations, the more that the um, status quo begins to tremble and we begin to see the earthquake that could destabilize the structures that have hurt us all so much. Mm. Great, thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Good stuff, man. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, it brought back lots of memories for me. How about for you? Yeah, you're just talking about uh, living through that time period in particular? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, I think, a little older than Linda K is, but, I mean, that culture was still, at least when I was younger, that was just assumed to be right. I mean, I don't think we ever... I don't remember like the purity rings being a thing when I was young. Uh, I think no, they kind of came, came out, out. Yeah, probably when our kids were young, though. Uh, yeah, nineties, uh, early part, early, and yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm I'm happy I didn't. I'm happy that I saw that purity ring issue as problematic and didn't encourage my daughters to go down that road <laughs> in fact i remember uh they're having the youth group having one of these all the girls go away for a week a weekend to talk about sexuality and stuff and and my wife and i saying you know knowing who's leading this i don't think we want our girls to go on this <laughs> um yeah so it's yeah complex stuff for sure yeah, I felt the same thing. I, I kind of got lucky, I think, with some of that. Like, I didn't have language for it yet, but there was something I was just uncomfortable about. And, and I've thought several times, especially in the last couple of years since I got introduced to Linda, uh, man, I'm glad I didn't uh, pursue that with my daughter that much. Um, I probably did more than I realized at times. But, yeah, I feel yeah. lucky about that. Um, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, again, was just... Uh, the uh, well the embodiment issue uh, concept idea and uh, how problematic that has been for the church for for a long time and you uh, what you did last night was done so well and so simply and not that it was a simple thing but easy to kind of understand in terms of where you kind of compare two different types of, of gods you know, and the one God that's separate and um, the one and impassable and unaffected and, and the other who was so interconnected with us, enfleshed, you know, the embodiment of the whole thing. Um, as an open and relational theologian, and, and not that Linda would claim to be one, though there's a lot of alignment, how do you, what do you think is going on with our problems with embodiment, our problems with sexuality and the shame and guilt that we feel around it. Yeah. Well, I think that we all have desires and those desires are not inherently evil or inherently good. And sometimes we follow those desires to harmful ends and sometimes we just follow those desires to positive ends. And I think 
so many people have seen what they consider to be negative consequences from following desires based on uh, the, the desires of the body, not only the desires of what feels good but looks good, that uh, some people have thought, well, the only way to really solve this is to construct a really clear list of do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. You know, don't do this, don't do that. She, Linda talked about that in her, video, in her video pretty well, but we could add lots and lots of other ones. And then this list becomes the standard that everyone must follow in order to curb those desires and help other people curb their desires in relation to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that approach has just caused so much damage. Mm-hmm. I understand it. I, yeah. I get it. I can see why it would be attractive. And in some cases, it probably is helpful. But life is far too complex. And it ends up denying implicitly, if not explicitly, what's beautiful about desires and bodies and setting people up for such frustration not only before uh, their sec- first sexual encounters, but after and throughout a lifetime, uh, there's got to be another another way. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking, and, and actually uh, one of our, uh, in one of the chats here, someone mentioned something about adultery and lust. Mm-hmm. I was thinking as, as uh, Linda was talking that it's easy to set up I'm going to talk the two things like I did last night again here, Jonathan. It's easy to set things up as only one of two choices, mm-hmm. purity or promiscuity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're not pure, then you must be promiscuous. <laughs> and as if, you know, if you're not, you're either saving yourself for that one person or you're sleeping with everybody and their uncle and their aunt and whoever else. <laughs> um And that dichotomy is so problematic, but I have to admit, it takes a lot of hard work to come up with another category other than those two. Mm -hmm. Um, If I can say love, sure, but what does love look like? Mm -hmm. Um, What does that mean? Uh, So when you think about, you know, purity culture, promiscuity culture that I just made up, (laughs) questions about lust, adultery, faithfulness, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, how do you think themes of open relational thought or generally speaking, just living a life of love yeah. play into that? Well, you said it's hard to come up with another category, which is true, but it's also hard to live in those two extreme binaries. Yes. <laughs> yes. We act as if, oh, like that is the better choice and it's really not. Um, yeah. And so it's a little bit complicated and a little bit complex. Um, and it has to do with questions of consent and of power and of differences and conversation and communication um, and, a, and a, a commitment to not be motivated by shame and guilt, but to be open, but to be motivated by the open, expansive, loving goodness and grace that that we are speculating that exists in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost, you know, I mean, it might not, we might be making it up, but yeah. we're, we're, we kind of feel like there's something bigger and stronger and deeper and better and truer going on out there than us. And um, 
So to tap into that, um, yeah, open and relational theology has helped me see how uh, fluid things are. One of my favorite present company excluded, of course, open and relational theologians uh, is Catherine Keller. And does anyone write better about sexuality and about fluidity and about, um, yeah, just non-binary than she does? I mean, I don't think so. She is brilliant. And she's a little heady uh, for some of you maybe who haven't read on that level, but she's worth um, she's worth every bit of it. So, so it's helped me think in terms of, uh, yeah, less binary and being more comfortable with the fluidity. Um, even, you know, my wife and I have said, which is not original to us, but uh, a lot in the last couple of years, I'm at least 50% masculine and feminine because I came from a mother and a father. So I'm, my, my makeup is somewhere across the spectrum there, you know. Um, and so I'm a walking fluidity, you know, embodiment person anyhow. So I don't know if I answered your question, but... No, that was good. As you were talking, I, I glanced down and saw that Kim put in the comments, she she su suspects, I think is the good way to put it, that the rise in purity culture coincides with the decline in women in ministry. I, I assume she means specifically lead pastoral ministry or some sort of you know, uh, leadership at a higher level amongst women. Mm -hmm. And uh, reminds me... Uh, uh, quite some time ago. In fact, maybe I'll find the link and put it in the chat box here. I posted a, 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 a list of 10 reasons why men should not be pastors, which is kind of playing off the 10 reasons why women should not be pastors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and one of the 10 is that, you know, men should not be pastors because they look too sexy in the pulpit. And uh, I suspect it's the, uh, it's the visual issues for women that many men think women shouldn't be in that in the pulpit which of course it goes both ways and right. people just don't think of it like that right i think you should do 10 reasons why men shouldn't be president either <laughs> yeah that's good <laughs> uh leave it to Rohan, trying to trying to throw some hard stuff here what's the difference between sexual desire and lust all right, I'm going to give you my take, but this, of course, is just my take. I used to, when I got this with my, uh, when I was teaching undergraduate students, because they'd always want to know how far is too far, when does lust kick in? And so I had this illustration as a heterosexual man who's attracted to women. Uh, so this is me going to be very vulnerable, and I'll probably say something inappropriate, but here goes. I'm glad we're recording, then. <laughs> I used to say, uh, suppose I'm at the beach, and as a heterosexual man, um, I see a woman go by who I think is very attractive, and I say in my, my head, wow, she's good looking. Have I lusted at that point? I would ask the class. Almost all of them would say no, that just simply being attracted to someone is not lust. So then I'd say the same scenario. The woman goes by, and I would say, ooh, she's sexy. Is that lust? Most of them wouldn't go there. My next point when I say she goes by and I would focus on some body feature that I thought was especially sexy. Now at this point in the conversation, 
a good number of women in the class would raise their hand and say, now I'm lusting. Once I locked onto some bodily feature, that was a problem. But the majority of the class would usually say no. Then my next one, I took it up another level. I said, a woman goes by and is a heterosexual man. I look at her. I think she's attractive, sexy. I like a particular body part. And then I think to myself, wonder what it would be like to have sex with her. Now, at that moment, most of the class would raise their hand to say, once I started thinking about the sexual stuff, I had lusted. But there was always some who, no, just because you're attracted to someone, you have the thought, I wonder what it would be like to have sex. That's not quite lust. So I would go one more. I would say, I see her. I'm attracted to her. I think she's sexy. I single out some body part. I wonder what it would be like to have sex with her. And then I make some kind of attempt to make that sexual experience happen. And this is all assuming I'm, I'm a married man and shouldn't be, you know, looking at someone else. Um, at that point, everybody was on board with lust. Now, what's the correct view? <laughs> I'm not sure. I do think the last one is probably lust. Um, I'm not so sure. I've had plenty of thoughts go through my head when I've seen attractive women. I wonder what it'd be like to have sex with them. Is that lust? Uh, I don't know. I think it's just part of being a guy who gets turned on as a heterosexual. So now I probably said all kinds of things that are going to offend people, but here we go. <laughs> Put in the comments all the ways I'm wrong. <laughs> this is time you've offended someone. So I'm sure I have. <laughs> uh, I think that's good. I think it has to, I'm guessing that lust has also, uh, in addition to what you're saying, something to do with power and something to do with uh, mm. disregard of consent of the other person in utilizing mm. using the other person uh, in a way that doesn't uh, see it from their perspective. Um, yeah. Elaine talked a little bit about that last night about uh, maybe maybe I'm making it up, but something about the vulnerability of entering into a relationship with someone. Um, you know, one of our persons uh, has on the chat uh, claims about how expectations for women were always higher than for men when it came to sexual sins. Boy, I think that was true in my history. And even today, it seems like uh, so many times it's up to the female in uh, a, sec a setting of heterosexual uh, attraction to yeah. take responsibility that this doesn't become harmful in some way. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, that's so. It's so the inequity of that is a, is a, is laughable. It's a joke. She says uh, she had an experience at a purity retreat where the gals got roses and looked on our male youth pastor's eyes and said, "I promised." And the boys just sat there and watched in the same room. They got no roses. Make <laughs> promises. That is that is amazing. And I hear about this stuff frequently, but but every time I just I never cease to be shocked. I've had other I've had other gals tell me about similar kinds of things, being at purity retreats, getting a rose, and then the youth pastor or someone standing up taking the rose and smashing it apart. Like this is what you were before you had sex, and and now this is who you are. You're trampled on if you do have sex. So um, we all we all share in the responsibility of that. It can't just yeah. Be I've got a question that I would really like to see some females, some women. Yes. Uh, try to respond to yes. uh, because it's one I I'm having trouble figuring out how to do as a man, but I think 
uh, I'd especially love to hear from women. One of the things Linda Case says, she talks about how Britney Spears owned her sexuality. Now, what does that mean? What, what, what does that look like? What, what does owning one's sexuality look like such that um, it's appropriate to feel good about one's sexuality, to express oneself, sex, oneself sexually, male or female, bi, trans, whatever, um, and yet it not be harmful in some way? Mm-hmm. And that's the tough question, I think. And I'd, I'd love to hear some of the people... Uh, you can you can take a shot at it too, Jonathan. But I'd love to hear some of our uh, our participants weigh in on that one. Yeah, I would too. I I, I thought that um, both times I watched that video. That's a really interesting phrase to own it. In our in our inability or unwillingness uh, to allow people to define what that means for them. You know, again, we're back into those binary things. Yep. Um, Roxana says, being comfortable with your body such that you can flaunt your sexy parts. All right. It might be. Yeah. Thanks uh, for being in, Roxana. Um, that's pretty, pretty simple. And I almost feel like, for whatever it's worth, as a male heterosexual, that it's, man, can't, shouldn't women pretty much just be able to do what they want to do? Dress how they want to dress, act how they want? It's hard because um, I think we live in an interrelated universe. Mm, yeah. And we aren't isolated individuals who can't, who are concerned entirely about ourselves. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, when it comes to sexuality, women have been the one who've been asked to pay, pay the, or carry the weight and trying to figure out what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm talking as a heterosexual here. I'm sure if we, if, you know, if I was uh, gay, it would be a different kind of a story in terms of mm-hmm. what I think about as attractive. But um, one side note, a little anecdote here. When we were talking about Britney Spears, it reminded me of a documentary I saw on Jessica Simpson. I don't know how long ago. And it had home home video footage of her singing in her home church. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person, I, I don't know if it was the sort of the host of the program or the voice. Anyway, they, they interviewed people and, and they said when she was in high school, it was very clear that she was going to be too voluptuous to be have a career in Christian music. So her, her looks, her attractive looks, we're going to uh, eliminate her from any kind of real career <laughs> in the Christian music world and i thought oh how horrible that is how yeah yeah there's so much messed up stuff about this and uh is it sandy i think commented that we've been taught that men basically can't control their thoughts and uh that does a serious disservice to men as well yeah and it also kind of paints women as having no thoughts of similar types, which is obviously not true. Right. <laughs> not good. Well, um, again, what we're hoping is we're, we're learning from each of these folks and they're kind of painting a different corner of this whole sexuality topic and uh, lots of thoughts and lots of ways for us to think through this. So 
I really appreciate what Linda's doing, the courage and the strength that it takes for her to do that. And um, I'm really proud of her. And uh, for whatever it's worth, all of you women who are fighting through this and trying to figure it out. So um, thank you for continuing to fight. Well, um, before you ask me any more questions that I won't know any answers to. <laughs> or before I tell provocative stories or case study scenarios. <laughs> thank you. For, thank you for saying that. And uh, that's all, it's all good stuff, man. Um, you want to introduce Dr. Monica? Yeah, Monica Coleman is a theologian. Actually, I think her current title at the University of Delaware is something like Professor of Religious Studies, mm -hmm. but she's uh, written quite a few uh, books in theology. She's known for being a process theologian. Um, she also has a really fantastic book about her uh, thinking theologically through uh, her bipolar uh, mental health issues. Um, she, this particular video is very, she's very confessional. It's like, it reminds me of testimonies when I was a kid at my church, when people would stand up and talk about their lives. That's the kind of uh, video you're about to see. Yeah, but those people, those people, well, those people didn't say the stuff that Monica. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, but I think she sets up what she wants to say near the end uh, in a way that at least draws me into her personal narrative, and and I find it very compelling. Yeah, very compelling. It's going to be good stuff. All right, let's weigh in on that, or let her uh, weigh in, I should say, and then we'll we'll come back and debrief a bit. Sounds good.